you guys will open up your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Again, that's where we're going to be at this morning, continuing on through our study through the book of Galatians. And I'm going to go ahead and read. You can follow along with me, and then we'll pray. Um, just really quickly, just kind of, we're, 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 we're starting in mid-thought when we read verse 1, where it says, then after 14 years. But if you remember from our study last week, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians there, the Gentile Christians in Galatia, to let them know um, that these false teachers who've been coming to them and preaching something other than the gospel message um, and saying that the message that Paul was preaching was an incomplete message. That Paul was defending the gospel message. He was coming against these, these men that were known as the Judaizers. And, and, and to, once he came against them and, and spoke, to, again, to the, the power and the truth of the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith, he, he then took the opportunity to um, validate it with his own testimony by sharing with them part of what they already knew, but giving them the complete picture of how he had become a changed man, a changed person from the inside out as a result of coming to Jesus Christ, putting his faith in Christ and receiving salvation and forgiveness of sins, where Paul said, you've heard it about me that I was a persecutor of the church. He says, let me tell you. And he explained and he expounded on it. He even said, you heard that I was a Jew among Jews. And, and, and he says, you don't even have a clue. I was, I was zealous more than my forefathers trained by some of the best and i was actively pursuing christians until i had a revelation to jesus christ he met christ on the road to damascus and he was knocked off his horse he was blinded and 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 the lord jesus revealed himself to him and paul says he says the fact that i am not who i used to be is the testimony is the witness is the greatest evidence that i have to proclaim to you the validity of the message that I preach, that there is a power within it that is supernatural. And so then he continues on with this account, recounting his life and what took place after his conversion. He, he speaks about going and preaching the gospel message and even to these churches in Galatia and then Asia Minor and others. And then he says this, continuing on to give them this evidence and making this defense for the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith he said then verse one after 14 years i went up again to jerusalem with barnabas and also took titus with me and i went up by revelation that's another key word same same word that paul used back in chapter one and i went up by revelation and communicated with them that the gospel which i preached among gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet, he says here in verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, meaning a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I want to just give some clarity on this verse as we go on. It's kind of humorous, but um, Paul was speaking about Titus and the message and the that, that he went to uh, discuss with the leaders there in Jerusalem, bringing Titus as an example of a Gentile believer. They say not, they, didn't even, they didn't even compel Titus to, to be circumcised. Him being a Greek or a Gentile would not have been, would have been circumcised. Uh, uh, only, only that was only the customs of at that day 
uh, the Jewish men as a result of the Mosaic law. And you might go, well, how did they how did they know he wasn't? Well, he's telling you that these men who were preaching these false messages that they were following him around and they were spying. And so when Titus was using the bathroom, these men were seeing if he was circumcised or not. And they were spying out our liberty. So in verse 5, he says, To whom we did not even yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, I love what he says here, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, he says, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, speaking of how he had been sent to take the gospel to the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised was, to, to, was committed to Peter, he says, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentile. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, and of course they were in the early church, church leaders, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. In other words, they gave them favor. They gave them acceptance. They, they approved of what they were doing. In verse 10, they only desired, desired only that we should remember the poor. And Paul says, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Now, in verse 11, when Peter had come to Antioch, continuing on with the story and the events that followed, it says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, and this is where Paul and Barnabas were at, he says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Why? For before certain men came from James, who was back in Jerusalem, the leader of the church, he would eat with the Gentiles. Peter would. But when they came, meaning the Jews from Jerusalem, the Jewish believers from Jerusalem, it says he withdrew and he separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as a Jew, not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justice, justified. But, verse 17, if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves, if, excuse me, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, while we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified, and this is the summation of all of what Paul just spoke here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. And Father, I pray, Lord, that would be true with us, that we would 
see it the way that Paul has put it forth today, that we have no life apart from You, that You live in us and through us, and that is a testimony of the power of the Gospel message of salvation by grace through faith. Lord, where we walk in grace, where we are saved by grace, where we are sustained by grace. And so, Father, give us a deeper understanding of that today. And as we heard the wonderful things that are going on in Juarez, Lord, through the work of Nolan and Marie, and the work of your Holy Spirit, we just pray for protection and provision over that ministry. We thank you for them for all the years that we've been able to partner with them, and we look forward to doing so until you return. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so as we begin to book this, break this down, I want to point out that back in the first chapter, if you remember, Paul greeted the, the churches in Galatia. He says, Paul the Apostle, I greet you. And then he wasted no time to jump right to the reason for why he was writing this letter to him. And the, the, the Christians in Galatia were turning away from this good news message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus to what Paul said was another gospel message. And it wasn't by Paul coining that phrase. He would even say, there is no other. There's only the one true message. But yet there's these others who have come and said, there's another one. That the one that Paul preaches is a false message. And Paul is saying, that's not so. Theirs is false. And that message was being taught by a group of Jews who Paul refers to in chapter 2, verse 4, here as false brethren. And this group of Jews was teaching the Gentile Christians that unless they were circumcised, one of many things, but specifically speaking of circumcision, according to the customs of Moses, that they could not be saved. Literally that their faith in Jesus was not alone enough to save them. In light of this, Paul denounces this different gospel as a heresy. And, and he even said that and if anyone preached to them another gospel other than one that he had brought, a person or even if it was an angel from heaven, that they were to then be seen as accursed. Literally what that means, that they were, being, they were to be deemed to be held in jeopardy of God's judgment. And after making these, plain, these claims, as I already kind of briefly explained the transition into this chapter, after making these claims, Paul continued to defend the true gospel message that he had brought to them by pointing out and explaining how his message and his apostleship had come directly from Jesus and not from any man, including those apostles, those leaders who were back in Jerusalem. Furthermore, he recalled, I think, as the most powerful uh, point of, of, of the evidence that he brings forth is that he recalled his past life, who he was and what he did prior to putting his faith in Jesus as a testimony of the evidence to the power and the truth of the good news message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Nevertheless, the message of salvation through faith in Jesus that was being given to the Gentiles by Paul was the exact same message as the same message that was being preached back in Jerusalem by the apostles. And, and this is what Paul is reiterating here. And in chapter 2, Paul continues to defend the gospel message and explains to them that the message is the same. There is no difference by recounting for them these events, these significant events that took place in Jerusalem that Paul is saying, listen, let me tell you about some things that took place that will help support as an evidence for what I have been teaching you. And when this issue of how the Gentiles are saved or how a Gentile was to be saved or could be saved 
was first addressed, or I might say recognized, by the early church leaders. And, and, and this is what Paul recounts. Uh, and, and then again, what he accounts here, starting in verse 11, is he brings to their attention even a confrontation that followed between him and Peter that supports the fact that it's salvation by grace alone. And the details leading up to this event that are now referred to historically by us today as the church is referred to as the First Council of Jerusalem. And they're recorded. If you want to look, you can. I would suggest that you wait and read these two chapters together on your own. But this account that Paul is referring to, or these accounts that Paul is referring to, is both in Acts chapter 14 and in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28, they have the actual details of the council, how it formed, what took place, what they discussed. And then the decision from that council is recorded in Acts chapter 15. So if you're interested um, in the entire event, not just the summarized version as Paul gives it here, and as we're going to talk about this morning, then I suggest you read it later this week. Now, before we go into these verses and start with verse 1, I think it's important for us to point out exactly who Barnabas was. Barnabas is mentioned by name here in verse 1. You can look and see. And Barnabas was one of Paul's closest friends after his conversion. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, that after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, that he eventually returned to Jerusalem, and he tried to join up with these Christians there, but they wanted nothing to do with Paul. They were afraid of Paul. They knew who Paul was. They knew that he was actively hunting Christians going outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel to arrest them and bring them back and have them tried and put to death. They were afraid of him. And any one of any person in their right mind would would be afraid. As a matter of fact, they didn't believe that Paul had become an actual disciple of Jesus Christ. However, Barnabas, we see he took a chance on Paul. And he brought him to the apostles so that he could tell them what had happened to him. In addition to this, we know that from what we read in Acts chapter 11, that the the gospel, that that we know that it went out of Jerusalem after the death of Stephen, right? We read about that. And and, and it, it went into a place called Antioch. Paul mentions that here in this text, which is in Syria. And, and it came to a group of Jewish people known as the Hellenists. The Hellenists were simply Jewish people who were descendants who actually practiced Judaism, but they lived like the Greeks. They were called Hellenists. And they adopted the Greek way of life, and they received this message of salvation by grace through faith, and they believed in Jesus. They also came to believe in Jesus. And so when the church in Jerusalem heard about those in Antioch, these Hellenists, coming to faith in Jesus, they, as a church leaders, they sent Barnabas down to Antioch to check it out, to encourage these new believers in new new faith. And we know that Barnabas got there and he saw that the work was too great, and so he wanted his friend Paul. And so he sent for Paul. He went to trace down Paul and bring him back so that he could help him in the work that needed to be done there in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, when we read through the book of Acts, they spent an entire year in Antioch teaching these new Christians until God 
in Acts chapter 13, made it known to them that they were to leave. And this is when Paul and Barnabas together, as we read in the book of Acts, and you're probably familiar with it, went on his first, they went together on their first missionary journey. And so the church in Antioch was the ones that sent Paul and Barnabas out. And um, when you read the books of Acts, you see that they went to Cyprus, they went into Asia Minor, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and this included this region of Galatia, who Paul is now writing this letter to. And then they returned back to the church in Antioch and reported about all the good things that God had done, how God had opened up, quote-unquote, the door of faith to the Gentile people. But here's the big button where we get to where we're at. But when the legalistic Jews, these Judaizers back in Jerusalem, heard about this, they were not happy that the Gentiles were being deemed as saved by grace through faith with no connection or no, no roots in Judaism. And so in Acts chapter 15, they took it upon themselves to send additional men down from Judea to Antioch and they continued to teach the brethren there that if the Gentiles were not circumcised according to the customs of Moses, then they weren't really saved. Consequently, there was a dispute between Paul and Barnabas that caused a great dissension. And in the end, it was decided that Paul and Barnabas would go up to Jerusalem, to the apostles there, to these church leaders, in order to deal with this question that had been building and boiling up to the surface over many years now, the question of primarily did the gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be completely saved now as paul begins to tell the churches here in galatia with this letter about what took place in jerusalem look here in verse one he first says that a 14 year period of time had taken place since his conversion there on the road to damascus since he had first ultimately gone up to peter and james and met with them. And when he went up to Jerusalem this time, he took Barnabas with him, who was well known. He took Titus with them. And Titus was this, I said, a Gentile believer who had worked with Paul, who had worked with Barnabas. And apparently he was one to Jesus through Paul's ministry. And, 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 and this is when Paul was on his first missionary journey. And Titus had been taken to Jerusalem to be able to stand like in this courtroom setting, on trial as the, as the gospel message was being defended and to stand as an example of an uncircumcised Gentile who had been saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And not because he was circumcised according to the laws of Moses or because he added anything else to his, to his faith apart from Jesus Christ. And so this is evident because in verse 3, if you look here, it says that after Paul and Barnabas had met with the apostles and the elders in private to discuss this issue of circumcision, it says that, that, that he being a Greek, Titus being a Greek, these leaders did not make a decision. They did not compel, they did not force Titus to be circumcised. In other words, those in Jerusalem, Paul says those who were of reputation, right, agreed that circumcision as defined or commanded or in accordance to the laws of Moses, they had nothing to do with salvation. If so, we could rightly conclude that they would have insisted that if Titus was claiming to be a Christian, then that he too would take that next step and be circumcised. Now, when Paul said in verse 2 here that 
when he reached Jerusalem, we got to get some clarity here, that he, he met privately with the leaders first, saying, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. It wasn't because Paul had some doubts. He's like, okay, maybe, it wasn't that Paul's like, maybe I'm wrong in this message. And as I'm going up to these religious leaders, these leaders in the church now, maybe I need to hold off on it until I talk to them just to make sure I'm, I'm right. It's, he didn't have doubts. Paul knew he was right. It wasn't that he thought he was wrong. You see, Paul had complete confidence in the gospel message that he'd been given to preach. So much so that we read in Acts chapter 15 where it is recorded as a historical account. It tells us that even as Paul and Barnabas traveled together on their way to Jerusalem from Antioch, they, they, they openly described the conversion of Gentiles to the other Jewish believers both in Phoenicia and in Samaria. They were proclaiming it as they made their way to Jerusalem. Furthermore, at the beginning of chapter 2 or verse 2, Paul says that it was a by a revelation. This is a key thing because it shows application for us in our own lives today. He said that it was by revelation, meaning by a word from God, that this discussion about the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, he said it was first done in private. There was a council that took place, but Paul said, I went to these elders, to the apostles in private first. Paul and Barnabas did together. And God had given Paul this wisdom, I think, to meet privately with these leaders first so that they together would be able to present a united front at the public meetings which would follow. Furthermore, we're told in Scripture to do the very same thing. That if we have a concern with one another, if we have an issue with one another, if we have something that we must discuss with one another, we don't go to three or four other people first and we don't bring it to the public sector to begin with. We go one-on-one. And I want to encourage you to do that. That's such an important thing, to come to a person, to work it out together. And then the Bible says, hey, if they, then if they don't receive you, to maybe bring two or three or to make it public. Lots of times in the church, that step is skipped, and it's not a good thing. We need to follow the process that Paul exampled here, and that was given by a word from God. And ultimately, Paul, we see he was concerned about the future of the gospel among the Gentiles because this specific ministry had been given to him from Jesus. Jesus had entrusted it to him. It was a valuable thing, a precious thing that needed not to be corrupted, that couldn't be corrupted. And if the pillars, as Paul refers to him here, had wrongly somehow sided with the Judaizers or even just tried to make some kind of compromise, then Paul's ministry, which he had already invested so much time in that he had already been called to, would have been in jeopardy. And so he wanted to get their agreement before he faced the whole assembly. Otherwise, there was this possibility of a division within the early church could have been the result. Now, once again, I'll point out that this council of Jerusalem, if you will, um, it's, it's recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 15. And, and when you look there, when we look to verses 6 through 21, we see that there had been a long dispute. There was this public debate going on over this issue for quite some time. We don't know the exact amount of time. It appears to be for several hours. And then finally, Peter, the Apostle Peter, stands up. That's what we read in Acts chapter 15. And when he stands up, Peter presented the case. It's a powerful thing that is recorded there. He, he, he presents the case for the gospel, the good news message of grace, of the grace and salvation that comes from God 
by faith in Jesus alone. Peter defines it. And this was a powerful thing, considering that years prior to this, Peter, he was the one that had been chosen by God first to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. This event is recorded in Acts chapter 10. And if you remember, it is a time when we read about the conversion of a Roman centurion, a man named Cornelius. And when Peter stood up to present the case to this council for the gospel of grace, he reminded the assembly of this, of Cornelius, and said at that time God had given the Holy Spirit to the believing Gentiles just like he had done to the Jews without any works to follow. And he made no distinction between the Jew and Gentile, hadn't, prefer, hadn't purified the Gentile through faith just like he had done for them. And this was a difficult lesson. This is what it's all building to. That the Holy Spirit came into them on the day of Pentecost and those who believed after, including the Gentiles who were looked at and seen differently as they did not follow the laws of Moses, had no upbringing in the roots of, of Judaism. But this salvation and the Holy Spirit empowering and indwelling and changing a person simply by faith in Jesus was a very, very difficult lesson for the early church to learn, for them to accept and to wrap their minds around this is the struggle that we're reading of because and the reason why is because there had been a a difference there had been a difference between jew and gentile for thousands of years and the mosaic law itself detailed these differences and even commanded the hebrew people to be set apart to live differently Yet, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-22, through 22, it teaches us that through Jesus' death on the cross, hear this, this is, this is what applies to our lives today. That through Jesus' death on the cross, He has broken down all those barriers between Jew and Gentile. And at the conclusion of Peter's speech in Acts chapter 15, Peter makes it clear that there is but one way of salvation for the Gentile. And it is the same manner by which the Jew is saved, and it is through our faith in Jesus Christ. It was said a long time, long time ago. Let me just stop for just a second and say, with the explanation that Paul's given up to this point, he also goes on a little bit further and in, in at the end of, the, of this chapter, and, and he says, he's telling us what this, he's telling us the application part of it. What do we do with this? So this is a pretty cool historical account and record, and we see how it was defended. We saw the struggle that was going on. But what, what does that mean to us today? And so as we continue on, I want to give you a quote that was stated by a man by the name of Elmer Davis. He, he stated a long time ago, referencing the United States, he said, He says, this will, speaking of the United States, this will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. Does that sound right? Yeah. We live in a place where we cherish our freedom. And I believe that this thought, I quote this man, Elmer Davis, and this truth that he puts forth, because I believe this thought holds true in regards to the church today. And I think that's what Paul was doing here, courageously. 
And the Apostle Paul was brave, I would say, as he courageously stood for the freedom that is found in the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith. And I say it that way because last week Paul declared that message and he said the true gospel message is one that produces the fruit of liberty, of freedom, and of peace. And only the true gospel message does that. It sets us free from death. It sets us free from sin. It sets us free from the law to to, to try to earn God's favor. And it gives us peace, peace within our hearts, a supernatural peace that can't be found in this world. Peace with God being reestablished with him. And so Paul's defending this freedom. He's defending this peace that, that that is so important and so vitally attached to the gospel message. And anything that that places people, please hear this because I believe that the church is guilty of this today. And anything that places people into some kind of spiritual bondage or places restrictions on the freedoms that we now have in Jesus, it must be fought against. Just like Paul was willing to fight against it then. Be fought against by those of us today who are brave enough. Get away, B. <laughs> All right. Gonna get killed. Uh, I'm not brave when it comes to them things. All right, I think I'm safe. It, it, it must be It must be fought against these things. It must be fought against by those of us today who are brave enough to stand up for what Jesus has given his life for. I shared last night with those who came to Saturday night service that I was raised in Catholicism. And maybe you didn't have the same experience as I did. That's fine. This isn't any particular dig against any one particular religion. But for me, I was taught there that Jesus wasn't enough. There was all these rules and regulations and, and, and requirements in order to be accepted by God. Faith in Christ and relationship with Christ, the work that Christ did was not enough that I needed to add to it. And the problem with that was that everything that I was told to do, I couldn't do. And even when I did do some of those things, they were for only a short while as I continued to fail. And as a result of that, I understood that I was condemned. I understood that hell was the place that I deserved. But I also came to the conclusion that God was not a loving God, and that is not the truth of what God's Word teaches. God is a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a just God, yes. But first, He's merciful, kind, and long-suffering, and willing that none would perish, but all would come to Him and be saved and repent. And in any form of that today that can be found in Christianity not just, not just Catholicism, because it's all throughout the evangelical church today too. I see it everywhere. Where, 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 where leaders have added to the gospel message. Very subtly, in many different ways. And any time that happens, it has to be stood up against. And Paul makes it clear in verses 5 and verses 14 that his primary concern 
was for this, was for the truth of the gospel message. And I love how he goes on about this because he wasn't just about the peace of the church. So often within the church today, we just want to be unified. We just want to have peace, and we do so at the expense of what is true. Little compromises. And the sad thing about it is, guys, you know it as well as I do, that it doesn't just happen within the church. The church is even doing that with those who are of the world, those who have not yet believed. Where we, we seek to be like them and compromise so that we can have peace and unity. And, and, and that's not what we're called to do. We're first called to stand for the truth and have unity in Christ. Oneness in Him. The Bible teaches us in James chapter 3, verse 17, that the wisdom that God sends down from above is not like earthly wisdom. The wisdom that God sends down from above is first pure, but then it's peaceable. Lots of people will say, oh, the wisdom of God brings forth peace. It does, but not at the compromising of what is pure, of what is true, what is right. And there's no true peace apart from the truth. The point is, is there are many within the church today who are willing to compromise things that should never be compromised in order to have peace. And it's this idea of peace at any price. But this was not the example that Paul gives us, nor is it his philosophy of ministry, and nor should it be ours here today. Why? Because we must stand for what is true. You've heard me say it before. We must stand on what is true and stand for what is true in these last days that we're living in. And we're told that, that we are living in a time when people, and I mean even people in the church, and this is who this is referring to when I quote this scripture, but it tells us that in the last days there will be people and people in the church who will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to inventions of falsehood. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-4, through 4, Paul writes to Timothy, a pastor there in Ephesus at this time, and he says to him, he says, preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Preach the truth. Be ready to do so in season and, and out of season. He says, in doing this, he says, convince people, rebuke people, encourage or exhort people with long-suffering, teaching them. He says, this is the reason why, he goes on, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In other words, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, there will be a time when people will just heap up teachers for them who will tell them what they want to hear. Not the truth, but what they want to hear. And ever since Paul's time, the enemies of the cross, if you will, have been trying to add something to the simple gospel of God's grace, of the grace of God. In doing so, they tell us that, that we are saved, or, or a man or a woman is saved by their faith in Jesus, plus something else. That holiness that is found in Jesus is only part there because then you got to do something righteousness is only part there because then you got to do something you got to have good works you got to keep the ten commandments you got to have holy living you got to be baptized you must be a member of the church or any other kinds of religious rituals that man deems to be appropriate according to his own wisdom 
But in this chapter, hear this, Paul makes it very clear that these kind of teachers are wrong. And in verse 6, Paul summarized the, the concluding decision of the Council of Jerusalem for us, which is recorded in Acts 14 and 15, by saying this, For those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. In other words, the council concluded as they met with Paul and discussed this opening that there was nothing that needed to be added to the good news message of salvation by faith in Jesus in order for a person to be saved. And even though the leaders in Jerusalem had wrote a letter and sent it out to the churches, the Gentile churches, stating that they were in agreement with Paul, it was by no means a permanent solution. The reason why is because the Judaizers, these Judaizers, these false teachers, just didn't simply give up. They persisted in interfering with the work that Paul was doing. And they went to invade the new churches that he found. And so Paul, when he left Jerusalem, we're told in Acts chapter 15, verse 23, that, the, that, that, that he took the news of the council's decisions to the churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, and eventually to the other areas where he had already previously ministered. But the Judaizers followed him, and Paul continued to, uh, to issue all kinds of warnings against them, like the one found. Listen to what he says about them in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2-3. through three. Such strong language defining and characterizing people who would pervert the gospel message of salvation by grace. He says to them in Philippians, he says, Beware of those dogs. Not flattering. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of mutilation. Speaking of the circumcision, those who are trying to put this on you. He says, for we are the circumcision. Who are we? Those who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in our flesh. In other words, what we can do, what we bring to the table or what we perceive we can bring or are told what we can bring. Jesus has brought it all. He's the man. He's done it all. And when we look at back at verse 6 where Paul referred to the apostles as those who seemed to be something instead of referring to them by their spiritual position, we might think that Paul was being disrespectful or rude, right? It kind of sounds like it. Those who be the, that, that thought they were something or, or perceived to be something. But in this instance, he's not being disrespectful. Rather, what he's doing is, is he's using this opportunity to remind the churches in Galatia and to show us once again that God does not show any personal favoritism to any man. In other words, this is what this means. This is what, this, this is what it means for us. The most important thing is this. The most important thing is the truth. And if these men who seem to be something people or persons in leaderships, positions or positions of authority, if they, through this council, had come to any other conclusion about the gospel, it would not have changed the truth. And I'm here to tell you that we have to have the same mindset in regards to the leaders and, and people in positions of authority today. Just don't take what a person says who's in a position of authority or power as the truth just because of the position that they hold. And I even refer to myself in your presence as that. The Bible makes it very clear that we're called to be what the Bible says is Bereans, checking out what we've been taught, checking out what we're being told, as if it lines up with God's Word. God's Word's the final authority, not me. And I'm here to tell you, please, for the sake of me being a fellow member of this this church congregation and a fellow brother in the Lord that, that if I am in error in any way, please don't leave me in error. Come to me. 
in love, come alongside me. Don't come at me. I don't want to do that to you and don't do that to me. But come alongside me and go, hey, brother, you, you said this. Maybe you ought to see if that's right or wrong because I don't know if it lines up. We're called to do so. The reason why is because God does not give favoritism to any man above the truth. The truth is what prevails. The truth stands. And, and, and the reason why Paul mentions this is because he's about to go on and point out that even the best leaders right here can mis- make mistakes. He goes on to name Barnabas and Peter as examples. They were acting like hypocrites. Around Gentiles, they were acting one way, and around the Jewish believers, they were acting another way. And and Paul pointed out that this caused others around them to stumble. Other Jewish believers in Antioch there also then joined in and followed their bad leadership and acted in hypocritical ways, ways that Peter was acting. According to verse 12, we're told that the reason for this hypocrisy, I want to point it out, look here, was fear. Man, that's that's a powerful statement. They were acting in these hypocritical ways in spite of knowing what the truth was because of fear. And in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, it says, the fear of man brings a snare, and every one of us can be caught up into that snare. We can. We must guard ourselves because we can move. We can be moved to this place of compromise. That's why there needs to be bravery and courage in standing up for the truth. Because any one of us can be moved to this place of compromise and hypocrisy when we care more about what a man thinks or what a person thinks than we care about what God thinks. And I've seen that prevail within the church today where the church is compromised because they're afraid of what certain people will think or how people might act. And the fact of the matter is that the truth of the gospel is something that we must defend. But hear me, hear me. More importantly, more importantly, the gospel message is something for us to practice. For example, Peter and Barnabas were great defenders of the truth of the gospel. Peter stood up at the council and and proclaimed it. However, in this instance that we read at the end of this chapter, they, Peter and Barnabas, acting like hypocrites, failed to live according to the truth of the gospel message. And in verses 14 through 21, here we have the summary of the rebuke that Paul gave to Peter. He recounts it to the church in Galatia when he confronted them about their hypocrisy. And in verse 14, in order to show Peter's inconsistency, the inconsistency of his actions and the inconsistency of his beliefs, Paul simply says this, You're a Jew, but you used to live like the Gentiles, with no barriers between you and them and other Christians, yet now you want the Gentiles to live like Jews, doing even what you do not do. Does that not just perfectly define what hypocrisy is? And it's important to note that as Paul continued on here in verses 15 through 17, he did so by using a very key personal pronoun. Look there, the word we. We. Let me explain. He used this word we in referencing the Hebrew people in general and pointed out that they, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, had special privileges being called by God, being set apart by God, being given the Mosaic Law and the the instructions on how to worship God and God being revealed to them. And, And as a result of that, they may not be guilty of the same sins that the Gentiles were guilty of. Nevertheless, he says this, we... He said, 
speaking of the Gentiles, are saved, the, or the Jews, he says, we are saved the very same way they are. We Jews are saved the same way that Gentiles are. And he purposely in this intent, speaking to Peter and Barnabas and revealing that to the, to the, the churches in Galatia, he purposely reverses what we might think would be the different order, right, of this. And this is due to the fact that, that salvation did not mean that Gentiles had to become like Jews. What it meant was something completely different. What it meant is that the Jews had to go to the level of the condemned Gentile. In other words... They had to see themselves as sinners who could only be saved by the grace of God. There was no hope for them in the works of the law. There was no hopes in them for them in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had to see themselves as those who could only be saved by the grace of God, by God's un merited favor and paul clarifies this if the worship team wants to come up we can wrap up this paul clarifies this in this verse when he reminds peter saying he says we are we not justified or given a right standing by god or before god by faith in jesus and he says the works of the law will never justify a man he asked this question was a jew ever saved by keeping the law certainly not he declares at the end of verse 17. And here's the deal. When we talk about, about you know, defending the gospel or living according to the gospel, the law is not a way of life. That's what he says to Peter. The law is not a way of life. The law, and Paul writes about this over and over and over again, and think about this when we think that we get to this place in our minds where we, we wrongly think or someone tells us wrongly that we can add anything that Christ has done when we could we add to anything that christ has done he says the law is the way of death the law kills verse 19 why does the law kill why are we confronted with the law that we see that we're not good enough when i even with my catholic upbringing came to this right conclusion in regards to there's no hope for me in trying to keep all these rules and regulation why does it kill it kills so that peter paul says here so that God might rise up again, that the gospel message might rise us up again into new life, into eternal life. And so in verses 20, Paul rightly concludes in verse 21, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been put to death with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I died so that I can live in him, right? He lives in me and the life which I now live in my flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. Not according to works, but by faith in the Son of God who lived, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he says this, man, he says, I'm not going to set it aside. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. Let me say this in, in conclusion. A Christian is not someone who is trying to obey an outward law. Lots of people come to church and they think that it's about a list of rules and regulations that now I've got to stop doing this and now I've got to start doing that. That's what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. A Christian is not someone who is trying to obey an outward law. And you might be a little bit confused, but let me give you some clarification. A Christian is one 
who has the living Christ within them by faith. I live because Jesus is in me. I have newness of life because Jesus is in me. I've become a new creation, holy and righteous before God because of my faith in Christ, because of relationship with Him. And by faith, we, you and I, the Bible says, are forever united with Christ. When He died, I died. When, when, when He died, you died. When He rose, we rose again with Him. And He if we allow for it, if we allow for Him to do this, not trying to do it on our own, but we allow for Him, He will live His life through us as we walk by faith. This is the Christian life. It's not a set rules. It's, 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 not, it's not a set rules, a set of rules or a set of regulations that we live by. Again, the just shall live by faith. And Father, I pray that these truths again would be rooted in our in our in our every aspect of our being. And that we would have boldness and courage, Lord, to to live that out. That that when someone comes to try to put us in into some kind of additional thing that we must do to be right with you or before you, that we would reject it and we'd live in the freedom that we have with you. We live with this love-based relationship. Grateful, God, for what You've done. Willing to follow You. Desiring to follow You, Lord, because we're united with You. May You continue the good work in us that You began. May the world see that, that here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel that we're about Your grace and there's a place for them no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter who they are, Your grace is enough for them. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?